Hello and welcome. This is the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. With me, the Academy's Deputy Director, Vas Christodoulou. On this week's show, we meet a genuine superstar of Silicon Valley, the behavioural scientist whose classes have, both directly and indirectly, influenced the design of almost every app on your phone. BJ Fogg is the founder and director of Stanford's Behaviour Design Lab and the world's leading authority on persuasive technologies and the science of habits. He sat down with Matthew Stadlin ahead of his live talk at the How To Academy to tell us more about tiny habits, his new book turning a lifetime of research into a method we can all apply to change our lives. BJ, it's great to be with you backstage. Hey, man. It's uh, good to talk to you. Now, listen, I am going through a very, very hard time in my life. Okay. It's been the worst year or so ever, for me, anyway. And I don't even mean in a sort of first world problems way. Reading your book, I realized that I was, in fact, now living it through my own experience without perhaps fully realizing it. So what I try to do at the moment is in order to distract myself from the overall narrative, from the big picture, which is pretty horrendous, as I've already intimated. And perhaps, actually, in order to try to change that big picture narrative, I am trying to enjoy the moment, to enjoy the little things, the tiny things, and actually to go as far as to celebrate them as well. And the hope is that by building those tiny things up, I gradually change the bigger narrative. Yeah, good for you. I mean, thanks. Now more than ever, I mean, with all the stress going on in politics and the environment, and just so many challenges we're faced with, that doing what you're doing is so important. Um, and there just are these moments in our day where we can pause and be grateful or find the positive that can add up to having big impact. Before I ask you about the power of Tiny, I spotted you walking around the auditorium just now, playing your recorder. <laughs> What's going on there? Oh, you know, I love playing music. I'm really not very good at it. You sounds pretty good. Uh, well, because of the acoustics uh, here. And what I've, you know, I, I play various instruments. And I, instead of meditating in the morning, I've shifted to playing actually a tenor recorder. I travel with a soprano because it's much easier. But I'll sit in the dark usually like five in the morning because I get up early. That's no virtue. I just get up early. And then I'll breathe into the recorder and play songs, um, sometimes just full tones and notes, whatever comes to mind. And it's just a great way to start my day. And there's something really powerful about music and playing music. So here in such a great space to pull it out and play a few songs. <laughs> the Emmanuel Center, indeed, in, okay. in Westminster. So... At the beginning of the book, before you go into your different big sort of chapters, you describe in various ways why Tiny is so great. Yeah. In your own words now, in synthesis, explain to me some of the ways in which yeah. it is so important. Well, first and foremost, given our busy lives and our stress levels, for most people, Tiny is the only thing that will actually work. The busier you are, the more stressed out you are, the 
the, the more your mind's going and your life's going in different directions, you really, for most people, they only can make these tiny incremental changes. So first of all, it's practical. Next, you can start any time. You don't have to wait for the beginning of the year or you have some crisis. Because it's so small, you can just get going. And then I'll just share one more that is, was a surprise to me years ago until I saw this, and now it's pretty clear. Sometimes when people try to change their behavior and do it in a big way, people will sabotage them um, for whatever reason, sometimes purposely, sometimes not. Um, and if you just make these tiny changes, you can just do it in a stealthy way. I suppose people might even sabotage themselves. Yeah, yeah, and often, yeah, that's a, another, because it's so tiny, there's really no excuse or reason. You're just making these tiny changes in your life, and if you pick the right ones, I think we'll talk about this, that's how they add up to transformative change. I was very open with you, I hope, at the beginning, and you're very open and candid in the book. And I want to jump forward just to ask you about the time in your life when you were incredibly stressed and you were getting up at three in the morning. You felt really rotten for various reasons, for personal reasons, for career reasons as well. Tell us about that time in your life, how bad it was, and that tiny step you yeah. took towards getting better. Yeah, I was scared. I was working on a whole bunch of things. So at Stanford, running my research lab, but also planning a big conference that over 300 people were gonna to come to from all over the world. And it was just myself and my lab manager doing it, not professional organizers. And then I had done a startup uh, that was failing and I had to talk to my investors about, guess what, you lost your money. Uh, there were some family issues going on where a nephew of mine uh, accidentally died from a drug overdose and we were still reeling from that. And just so many things came together that I just remember. So there was this moment, you know, I won't go into the story of why I decided to floss my teeth, but I decided to floss one tooth. And I remember looking in the mirror and going, okay, BJ, you got one thing right today. If everything else goes wrong today, if the wheels come off, if everything comes unhinged, you got one thing right, victory. Good for you. You got one thing done. And I really, really meant that. And then there was this recognition of me saying, good for you, you got this one thing right. I did it again and again. And that's led to a much, well, a whole chapter. And in some ways, the whole theme of tiny habits is you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. But you did check yourself and you wondered whether this was sensible or whether it yeah. might be a little bit wacky could this really be true that you are feeling better because you are flossing one tooth and your answer to that is yes well i'm a behavior scientist right and so you, the training is to be skeptical and it's about data where's the data where's the evidence and i think the surprise was i at least was open to my own feelings it didn't have to be data it's like wow and one thing that i think it matches what i've said over the years is I think a, a, an excellent scientist has to be open to possibilities, okay? So that goes beyond the possibilities of what we currently think of the scientific method or how you do research. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that, that's, I was embracing that and saying, okay, something happened here. Now let me expand this in my own life. And then after about a year of playing around with my own behavior and creating habits quickly and easily, then I started teaching it to others to see like, okay, is this method just about me and that I'm odd or can other people do it? Fast forward, 
Now, I've coached over 40,000 people personally. Gathering the data, yes, but also their stories. And uh, to me, the evidence clear, is clear. You can change your habits uh, more quickly and easily than most people think. And you can do it by feeling good, not by feeling bad. We'll talk about the power of emotion a little bit later on in, in, in a bit more detail. I have to be very honest with you and, and suggest that just a, a, a little bit of skepticism I had about the idea of imagining myself flossing one tooth and every time I did that then looking in the mirror and saying great or victory. But when you talked about the idea of doing press-ups, two press-ups to start with, exactly, <laughs> you're looking in good shape, two press-ups after doing your teeth or whatever, I thought, well, that's actually rather persuasive. I could imagine myself doing it. I suppose my wider worry is... How is this different? I know you're massively respected in your field. How is this different from other behavioral psychology or other self-help stuff? Yeah. How, how do we make this relatable to us so it isn't yet another thing that we start along the path of and then abandon? Yeah. Well, I think it's different in a whole bunch of ways. I mean, the book is based on my own research. It's not a summary of the old ways. It didn't work very well. Um, to your point, and I think it's a really important one, first and foremost, when you're creating new habits, help yourself do what you already want to do. So if flossing isn't meaningful for whatever reason, and press-ups are, do that. If you know meditating through calming breaths isn't something that interests you, don't do that. So first and foremost, focus on creating new habits you want, not ones that feel like should. Motivation is a, a key word in your work and it's not necessarily a positive word in your mind but it fits it's mixed and it fits into this important context of the elements of behavior tell us the three elements of behavior and how motivation fits in there yeah in 2007 i put together the pieces of a puzzle in some ways it's like an answer to a riddle where behavior happens when three things come together motivation to do the behavior ability to do the behavior and a prompt and that's it. It's just those three things. So let's talk in a bit more detail then about motivation, the idea of focusing on matching. Yes. So in the chapter about motivation, I basically say, yeah, first and foremost, pick behaviors you want to do where you already have motivation to do it. Um, and as you pick new habits to do, there's really three criteria. So you're matching yourself with the best new habits. So instead of the old-fashioned way of, oh, I have to go to a gym for an hour a day and I'm going to have to figure out how to motivate myself to do this thing I don't really want to do, no, don't do that. Instead, pick behaviors, number one, that you want, new habits you want. Next, you have to be able to do them. So that's motivation ability. And third, the behavior should have impact. So if you're trying to reduce stress, if meditation reduces your stress, great. If it doesn't, for some people it causes more stress, then don't pick that one. So in Tiny Habits, I talk about matching yourself effectively with new habits. And that's in some ways a much more important concept than just trying to sustain motivation. And in fact, in Tiny Habits, you don't try to keep sustaining motivation. You get really good at matching yourself with behaviors. Let me give an example. So in my own life, uh, I do value physical activity. I think it's good for lots of reasons. And what I found out that, uh, so I live half time in Maui. And I found out that I really liked to go surfing. 
So I don't have to motivate myself to go surfing. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I'm looking at the clock. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30. I'm like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. About 5, 5.10, it starts getting light in the summer, and I can head out. So I'm not having to motivate myself to go out. And surfing is hard. Surfing is hard. I go out there and just, bam, I get this great workout. But it's also a spiritual experience, and there's just so many good things. So I discovered that surfing was a good match for me, for my partner. Um, he found out that a good match for him in terms of working out is rowing on a rowing machine. I would have not guessed that for him. We've been together almost 30 years. But he discovered through a process that rowing is the thing he loves. And he gets up early in the morning and goes and rows. And that habit, like other habits that you do, maybe we'll talk about this, as you do a new habit and feel successful, it naturally has these ripple effects. So now he's lifting weights and doing other things in addition to his rowing. So. Pick, and there's a process to figure out what are the best habits and how do you match yourself with the right habits, and I call those golden behaviors. Let's just pause right there because you say that you've been going out with your partner for 30 years, three decades. Yeah. How does the power of tiny help us in our relationships, in our romantic <laughs> relationships? Oh, in so many ways. I need ways. all the help I can get here. Yeah, you know, in so many ways. I mean, you can, using my behavior model, you can look at your partner's behavior and understand what's going on, what prompted it, what's the motivation behind it, and what were the ability factors. If they're not doing a behavior that you want them to do, often we think the first thing we need to do is motivate them. Get upset, or that's actually the wrong direction. The troubleshooting order is you first check to see if there is a prompt. So for example, um, I, I wasn't wiping down the shower, like my partner thought I should. He's a clean freak. And he kept saying, oh, wipe down the shower, wipe down the shower. And I didn't do it until he demonstrated exactly what the behavior was. So in the behavior model, B equals MAP. So there's the behavior. And he explained it perfectly to me. He said, BJ, when you're done showering, he always showers before me. He says, I'm going to leave my towel right here. That will be your reminder. You take the towel and you do this. And he showed me exactly how to do it. So that was my ability. He showed me how. He trained me up. And then the motivation was built in because, yeah, I want to maintain the shower and I want to keep the relationship good. So all three things came together. And he specifically had to dial in that make it easy for me to do by showing me and saying, this is your prompt. My towel sitting here will remind you to do this. Now, there's an important nexus, isn't there, between prompts, which you've mentioned quite a bit, and location. There's no, there's no point in or no good in using the garage as a prompt to clean the kitchen, for yeah. example. Yeah, there's different ways to design prompts. And prompt design is so important. Often we just leave it to chance, like, oh, I'll just remember to wipe down the shower, I'll just remember to call my mom, or I'll just remember to do whatever. And that's a mistake. Uh, you can design prompts specifically, and in the tiny habits way, what you look for is a routine you already do that can serve to remind you to do the new behavior. So in my own life, and I can see you smiling because you know what I'm going to say, I wanted to do push-ups throughout my day. And in the tiny habits way, you scale it back, so it's super tiny, just two. I can do more if I want, but the habit is two. And I found that it fits after I pee. So it's after I flush the toilet, I do two push-ups. Wash my hands and go on my way. The more you drink, the stronger you get. And the more coffee, yeah, right. So there's a direct correlation between coffee consumption, water, and my strength. But when you find a routine that can reliably act as your prompt, 
then you don't have alarms and post-it notes and you know memory failures. It just it just it integrates into the natural flow of your day, and you actually forget that you ever created that as a habit. That it just feels like that's what you always do. So how do you grow that? How do you grow the the tiny habits yeah. to become something much bigger? Because I guess you don't limit yourself these days to just two no, press-ups. No, there's two two ways that it grows. Number one, the habit itself can and will get bigger. You will naturally go from flossing one of your teeth to all of them, two push-ups to more, snacking at three o'clock to snacking in healthy weights at other times. So it naturally grows. Um, now. You can always do more. Even at the beginning, you can floss all your teeth if you want. Get extra credit. Yes, exactly. And you think of it as extra credit. But you keep the bar low. So one way that Tiny Habits is way different, and then I'll get to the other way it grows in a second. But one way that Tiny Habits is really different is you don't keep raising the bar on yourself. You don't go two push-ups, five push-ups, eight, and then I have to do 12, and then I have to do 20. It's always the minimum is okay. And then when you do more, extra credit good for me and when you only can do two or only want to do two push-ups bam you did it good for me i did it i got it done so it's all about setting yourself up for success and that includes surprisingly not raising the bar and forcing making yourself do more now the second way that tiny grows bigger is when you do a new habit and feel successful and the feeling of succeeding is very important you naturally start doing other behaviors that are related. Let me give an example. I created um, a habit of after I emptied my spam folder, I would take three calming breaths. It took a long time to find where that was going to fit in my life. But oddly enough, as soon as I empty my spam folder, I take three calming breaths as a way of meditating. I can do more if I want, but I don't have to. But once I had that habit wired in, I saw myself doing that habit and other relaxation behaviors at other parts of my day. Like say I was restless at night or something frustrated me at the airport or so on. So it generalizes to other parts of your day. We're going to talk about negative habits, negative cycles and how we disrupt that and become positive. But when it comes to your positive tiny steps, if we feel that we're slipping back from those, if if we are not managing to floss even one tooth every evening or we're not able to do two press-ups, whatever it is, or or wipe down the the shower. We find ourselves failing, in other words. How do we get back on the horse? Yeah. Um, Number one, check the prompt. So there's a troubleshooting order here. First of all... You might have got the prompt wrong in the first place. I might have, you know, I thought I'd do three calming breaths after I sit down on the subway every morning, but guess what? I'm thinking of other things. People want to talk. So you just find a new place to put it in your life. If it's in an appropriate spot, then you go, well, is it tiny enough? And then if you have a prompt and it's super small, then you know it's a motivation problem. And guess what? You've matched yourself with, I don't want to say the wrong habit, but not an optimal habit. That's a sign that, oh, I, I, I need to find something else because I'm not, I don't really want this new habit. And that's okay. You know, in the process of figuring out how to change your habits in your life there's twists and turns nobody's perfect and sometimes we think a habit it's like i thought eating an orange every lunch was going to be a great habit for me but as i got into it it was like you know what i don't really want to eat an orange every lunch and so sure i could somehow manipulate myself into it but why end that habit and do something else 
Tell us a little bit more about the power of emotion here and how that can help us, how celebrating can yeah. make us feel good, how feeling good, in other words, and linking feeling goods to particular habits is so crucial. And perhaps maybe give the example of the mother who had six children under the age of 13 yeah. or whatever it was who had a sticker yeah. on her fridge. Yeah, th thanks for that. Uh, and that mother was my sister, Linda, and I don't reveal that to the last chapter. Oh, spoiler alert. How <laughs> are you saying here? Um, yeah, so as it turns out, the notion that repetition creates habits is not accurate. That's not what forms habits. And, it, and we need to get rid of that idea because if you believe that it's repetition and you hang in there for 21 days or 66 days or whatever, then you're looking at behavior change as something to endure, something of suffering for 21 days or 66 days, and then boom, you'll have the habit. It doesn't have to be like that. And plus, that's not what creates it, so it doesn't wire it in. What does is the emotion you feel as you do the behavior or immediately after. So it's emotions that create habits, and that's a radical shift from the idea that repetition creates habits. And so in, in the tiny habits method, well, let me explain how it works, and I'll explain how we operationalize it in tiny habits. So when your brain, when you're doing a new behavior and you feel a positive emotion, especially if it's unexpectedly large, your brain goes, whoa, what just happened? Right? And so um, the release of dopamine is the regulation changes. And that actually changes the physical structure of your brain to cause you to remember that in the future. Because we're cause and effect machines. If this, then this. If this, then this. If I floss one tooth, I'm going to feel awesome. right? So that then goes, oh my gosh, by flossing I feel good. Or by push-ups I feel good. And so that is the core of what creates habits. So if you're good at feeling a positive emotion, and specifically the emotion of success, as you do a new behavior, the stronger, the more intense that emotion, the faster you'll wire in the habit. And I know that's a totally new way of looking at this, and it's going to upset some people, and it's going to be controversial, but that's the bottom line. It's, it's about emotions. So in tiny habits, that victory I did in the mirror when I was like, victory, you know, if everything else goes wrong, I've lost one tooth, that was a spark of success, which then helped wire in that habit and motivated me to keep doing more. So now that technique is called celebration. And what you want to do as you do a new behavior that you want to become a habit, you celebrate it. That's, you do something that causes you to feel the positive emotion right then. And for some people, it's like awesome or victory or um, in tiny habits, I give a hundred, a hundred different ways to celebrate. But one way to think about it is this. If you're watching football and your team is behind and in the last second they score a goal and win, what do you do at that moment? Whatever you do at that moment is a natural celebration for you. I tend to run out onto the street and shout really loudly, so that might not quite work <laughs> okay. for me, I don't think. Dial that back a little bit, but you're headed the right direction, yeah. So you can explore different ways that you celebrate naturally. <laughs> Running on the street might be a little elaborate. Uh, and then you bring that in as a way to hack your brain. So in tiny habits, you're hacking three things. One, you make the behavior super tiny. Two, you find what it comes after, what routine it comes after. And the third hack is, in some ways, they're all important, but this is vital, is you cause yourself to have this feeling of success in order to wire the habit in.
We have to step briefly back from happiness. You mentioned your sister, Linda. She's a very important figure in the book. And towards the end, you talk about how she was in some ways a really important inspiration to you because she was the mother of the nephew tragically lost. Right. And you helped her. Yeah. And, you know, Linda's story is... is, I don't know anybody who's suffered more loss and hardship than Linda. And from financial, it just goes on and on and on. And Linda was at the point, and I think it should be okay. I mean, she's courageous to let me share her story in the book. But basically, she would have checked out of this life. It was so hard. And and that's not a secret to her friends. Had it not been for the Maui habit, which goes like this. After my feet touched the floor in the morning, I will say it's going to be a great day. And in Linda's life where she didn't even want to get out of bed and everything was crumbling around her and there really wasn't much hope in sight, that those seven words gave her a glimmer of hope and a, a, at least a momentary feeling of success that could help her move forward. And that is, you know, from my perspective as her brother, wow, um, that's just, I'm so glad I was able to help her. In putting the book together, she was happy to have her story shared as personal as it is and there's other things in there because she wanted to help other people exactly that's what she's about and she's like if it's going to help people that share this story so how do we change together well there's (laughs) i did a year of research in my lab at stanford on this question i will focus on one of the units of change that i think matter most and that's the household you know, there's other ways to change. There's work groups and cultures and so on. But the household is the unit of change. Let's all change together. And in some domains, it's really important, like nutrition. Like let's, you know, if one person's trying to eat in a certain healthy way and everybody else is eating pizza and pop, it's not good. So nutrition, uh, sleep, changing together as a household, the way you use media. Um, and the way... Ideally, what you do is you find a specific habit that everybody wants to do together. And then that makes it really easy to implement that, whether that's ways of eating or how you consume media or even rules of the house, like who takes off their shoes and how that works. So in Tiny Habits, I give a step-by-step process of how to figure out what you as a family or housemates, or a work team, what do you collectively want to do? Like, align yourself. It only takes, like, it's a 30-minute process to figure out what are the new habits that we all want so you're not going upstream later. And then once you identify, so it's like golden behaviors for us as a household, and then you can implement that way more easily than, you know, making a proclamation of there's no f- cell phones at the dinner table, right? If that's not what your teenager wants to... Well, i got a longer opinion on that. Uh, but the point is, if you can align your group, especially your household, that's a better way to go. How scalable is the power of tiny as tiny habits, our tiny habits? Can we really, as individuals, hope to change culture, to change society? How big can it get? I hope so. I mean, my research doesn't look at cultural level impact. I've done work on groups uh, and within companies, creating uh, tiny habits for safety, tiny habits for stress within companies. What one thing that I really aspire to is that this feeling of success, being able to call up in, in the book. I mean, this emotion had no name. So in the book, I call it shine. So shine is the name for this feeling you have when you succeed. 
one thing I aspire to is to have culturally and globally give people the skills and the the skills to create shine and the understanding of the importance of that emotion so people can use it in their own lives but also with their kids their students their spouses their work colleagues that pot that ability to embrace a positive feeling or create it and not resist it and push back on it I'm curious to know whether you think that your psychology your philosophy can work cross-culturally so we know that different cultures can have yeah. in very generalized ways different ways of behaving yes can this work equally well in Japan or in Britain as it does in America? My data would suggest yes. So only about half of the people who've signed up for my five-day program, you know, I've coached 40,000 and my, co- my trained coaches have coached other thousands and thousands. Uh, so that's, you know, about half of the people are outside the U.S. And yes, people from the U.K. will push back and say, oh, BJ, we're not like that. That's a California thing. But when they reflect and when they look at, yeah, what do I do when I feel successful? What's that reaction? And it's probably quieter and more subtle than somebody from California might do. But there is a way that people naturally celebrate. Uh, and you've got to just watch yourself or go through the exercises in the book to find that and then apply it and see what happens. I mean, the way our human brain works in response to emotion I'm convinced it's global. The specifics of what celebrations work is going to be different. The specifics of what motivates people or the ability factors of their prompts are different. But we're all humans. And so emotions work in this way. And the behavior model, those fundamental components are true for everybody in all cultures. I promised we'd revisit this idea of untangling bad behaviors. In synthesis, Help us with that. Yeah. So we've all heard the phrase, break a bad habit. And it was at one point in my research when I realized that break is not how this process works. And that even by using the word break, we're setting up the wrong expectation for these kinds of habits. You know, break implies that if I put a lot of energy in in one moment, it's done and it's over with. And that's not how these kinds of habits typically work. Although you do use the word untangling, as they say, and untangling my headphones throws me into despair. Okay, but hopefully I can help you there. (laughs) So here are headphones right here on the table, and we've all had this. So instead of break, I say, think about it as untangle. So you pull your headphones out. Yes, it's tangled. That's like you looking at a snacking habit or a social media habit. It's a lot of different behaviors that we cluster together. And on the outset, you may not know how to solve it, just like these habits. But what I walk people through step by step, and it's essentially this, is find the simplest part to untangle and focus on that first. So whether it's bad snacking, find the easiest thing to stop in the bad snacking or the social media, do that first, then go to the next easiest and the next easiest. And even though you don't know how to solve the most inner tangle in a habit or with your headphones, you know that as you move forward, it's a process, you'll get there. But you start with the easiest and go to the next easiest. So uh, it, the untangling analogy is very accurate. Now, there are some habits where you just have to completely stop, and there are some habits where people really do need to seek professional help. But for most of these habits we're talking about, breaking bad habits, the untangling analogy and process is appropriate. 
I asked you earlier how the power of tiny or tiny habits can help us in relationships. I want to yeah. give you a couple of other really big life examples and see if you can help us okay. with those. So let's take coming out yeah. for one. You, you say in the book that you came out. Would the power of tiny, as I call it, or tiny habits have helped you in such a big picture and important thing? Yeah, probably. I mean, it was a scary time. I mean, it was, uh, and even in some parts of the world. Um, yeah, I think for sure. Um, what doing tiny habits does is it gives you hope. It gives you hope because you see evidence you can change. So it's not just a false hope. It's like, oh my gosh, I changed this, I changed that. And that reduces fear and increases hope. And that, I think, uh, would have helped me a lot, actually. But if I say to you, I want to improve my career in a rather yeah. sort of big scale, Bam. globalized way. That's a big thing, right? Yes. How does Tiny help me there? That's very direct. So what you do in the steps that I outline and the broader work I call behavior design. And Tiny Habits is a method within behavior design. There's a way then to figure out what are the wide range of different habits and behaviors I could do to improve my career. There's a brainstorming step that I call magic wanding. It's not like you're doing all of them, but you're exploring a bunch of options, and then you're matching yourself with the best ones. So for something like improving your career, bam, it's a great way to go. In fact, I use what I read in the book. I use it all the time. I've used it for years. It's really, really helped me, uh, including in career. Um, so you're not guessing at how I can improve my career. You're following a system, and the system's pretty fast. I mean, it's not like two minutes, but 20 minutes. And through that, you can target, pinpoint exactly what are the best new habits for you in order to advance your career or reduce stress or lose weight or you know, strengthen the relationship with your partner. Has it ever gone wrong in your experience of coaching these tens of thousands of people? Oh, I'm sure it has. Let me think of a good example. Naming um, no names. Name or no names. Let's see. I mean, there are times when people don't make it tiny enough. I mean, they don't make it tiny enough. Um, I can't think of a vivid example of where it's really gone wrong for somebody. I mean, somebody. are there risks attached? Oh, yeah, definitely there's risk. You're changing. Let's say, for example, this is close to true, but it's a bit of an exaggeration. I'll say that. So I decided to start using Snapchat as a way to stay connected with my nieces and nephews. So it's like, okay, every day you Snapchat for a little bit, which I did. Uh, and I kind of like Snapchat. And I started snapping on Snapchat. Well, now it's called Snap. And it could have gone wrong if I started using Snapchat for like an hour or two hours a day. Okay, fortunately I didn't. I ended up using it more than I thought I would because it is fun and goofy and I can be stupid on Snapchat. And it's, I don't think, public forever. Um, but yeah, there are, for example, in the book, I... Early in the book, I, there's a, an exercise about creating a daily chocolate habit. And there are quite a few exercises, I should say, in the book. Yeah, which in some ways are optional, but if you want to learn the skills of change, do the exercises. But early on, it's like create this habit of, of eating healthy chocolate. Now, the idea there, it's really about nutrition. It's almost like a, a vitamin or a vitamin, as y'all would say. But it could go wrong if you started eating tons of chocolate every day. So it's like, okay, this is a habit that's not supposed to grow. You're practicing the skills of change with this habit about daily chocolate. And if you can create the daily chocolate habit, you can create other habits. It's exactly the same process. Um, there is an example in the book, because this is not a po-faced 
project here where you even say that drinking booze or drinking alcohol can help you with your inhibitions on the dance floor. Yeah, but I... <laughs> I don't know how seriously we should take Well, that. I, I, I was, uh, yes, in the context of saying, yeah, there are better ways to do this. So I'm a huge advocate of dancing. And I ran a com two conferences at Stanford that are all about dance innovation. And the point of that story was, instead of offering alcohol, uh, what we did at one of the events is, and this was at a health event, we handed out sunglasses to disinhibit people. So it seemed to serve the same purpose of making people feel less anxious. And by handing out sunglasses, people would get on the dance floor. And we didn't Based have to on booze. the premise that little children, when they put their hands over their face, <laughs> think no one can see them, right? Yeah, or darkened room or whatever. So if you can figure out the fear that's inhibiting a behavior and get rid of that fear, then the hope for the behavior can emerge. And that's the role that the dark rooms or alcohol or sunglasses, they're all serving to reduce the fear. So then the motivation you get through hope can emerge. I'm going to ask you for your concluding thoughts in just a moment. But first, why did it take you so long to write this book? Uh, I don't mean in the writing of it, but why, yeah, well, no, why did it take you so long to get round to writing yeah. it? I mean, you know, I was, in my work, I always tried to break new ground. And it, there's exciting stuff that kept coming my way and like discoveries, I guess I'll call them. And I was making all these notes and testing things and teaching new classes. And it just felt like I didn't have time to stop and pull together tiny habits in a book like this that I didn't want to stop the discovery and the exploration I was doing. Um, however, one day, one night, I had this dream uh, where I was going to die in a plane crash. I was in a plane. I was convinced I was going to die. I've had that dream many times. Yeah. Well, well and then the, my reaction in that moment was very clarifying. It wasn't, there's was only one reaction, and it was a deep regret, just feeling of, oh, no, I've not yet shared my work in a way that can reach the people that it needs to reach. And I woke up. And it's like, oh my gosh, that was just a dream. I'm not dead. I told my partner first thing in the morning, this, and it was very clarifying. So at that point, I did put other things on pause. I did find a way to move forward with the book. So it was that moment that was so clarifying about my priorities and frankly, what I feel is my obligation to share. I, I, don't, I, I think these things that you find in Tiny Habits were a gift to me that I have an obligation to share a responsibility, and that's what the dream woke me up to. Sum things up for us then very briefly, and obviously we haven't covered all the ground, so if there's some important things we've missed that you'd like to weave in, here's your opportunity. I think it's just to, you change best by feeling good, not bad. And it's easier than you think, and you don't have to be perfect, and it actually can be fun. So it's like, it's this shift, like if you could see it, from my perspective and other people that have done tiny habits, you can set aside all those old notions of behavior change and that sense of failure, or you might not live up to some ideal. And it's a whole different way. And um, so I, I think that's it. It's, it's just take the next step, and you, you can do it. And that's why I put the book together. And that's why I think so many people have, have have resonated with what's in here over the years and now with the book is, wow, can it really be this easy? And it's like, yeah, if you do it in the right way, you can change your behavior and transform your life through this process. 
BJ Fogg, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Matt. This week's show starred BJ Fogg and was hosted by Matthew Stadlin. It was edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can visit us in London and meet the world's leading thinkers and doers almost every night of the week. Find out more at howtoacademy.com or on your social media platform of choice. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.